Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome. We're still waiting for one uh, more person, David Knott, who I think is delayed, so he might storm in at some point during the, during the talk. Welcome. Uh, this is a C2 stream. I'm really pleased you chose it. Um, welcome. So this panel will be entitled On the Frontline of War and Conflict. Our session will explain. My name is Fauzia gibson Poe. I'm a teaching fellow in Global Health, and I see students. That feels great, hello. Um, so our session will explore the role of healthcare community in safeguarding humanitarian law amidst the increasing challenges of da and dangers of providing healthcare on frontline of war and conflict. And we've got some very interesting panel with us today and we'll start by Skyping Thierk Shalut, who is in Gaza City at the moment. And I will get on the computer, I think we can Already maybe see her, yeah, there she is. So I'll just introduce her. I don't think she can hear us at the moment, but I'll introduce her quickly. So Fich is the director of programs in Gaza for medical aid for Palestinians. She trained as a neonatal nurse and has a master's in public health and health behavior. Fich has worked for medical aid for Palestine for the past 12 years. Previously, she worked for UNFPA. Save the Children, and has taught at the School of Public Health at Al-Quds University in Gaza. She was born in Al-Makazi refugee camp in the middle of Gaza, and she now lives in Gaza City. And, and I will just connect with her just a moment. Hello, Fir, can you hear us? Yes, I hear you very well. Brilliant. Welcome. Thank you. So I just introduce you, so if you want to start with your presentation. All right, thank you very much uh, uh, for this introduction. And uh, if you allow me, I just would like to, uh, to say a few words about uh, MAP. Uh, as you said, I've been working with MAP for the last 12 uh, years. And um, the main focus uh, currently, we have three key programs that we are supporting um, in, in Gaza, particularly. I mean, the first is about emergency uh, preparedness and, and response. This is, uh, yeah, given the, uh, the situation in, in Gaza for the last few years, is considered one of our biggest programs. Also, we have a training uh, program that mainly focuses on building capacity of health uh, staff from the Ministry of Health and NGOs, uh, nurses, doctors, physiotherapists, etc. And uh, the third program is uh, community development in which we work with local uh, NGO, non-governmental organizations um, in Gaza Strip to support the disability, uh, uh, mother and child health, and some other aspects of mental health um, and others. Um, that's, that's all. And if, if this is fine, I will start straight away uh, with my presentation. Um, Actually, yeah, I prepared this presentation and uh, was trying to think what the best you know, to talk to you about. And I thought perhaps it's best to share some experience we have given that we have uh, this office in Gaza and that we have our team and that we have this uh, great relationship with the local uh, uh, people working at the Ministry of Health and uh, the um, health organizations in Gaza. Uh, so in this presentation, I will try to touch on some of the uh, 
the things that we have witnessed, the things that we have heard, the things that we came across actually um, uh, through uh, our presence in, in, in Gaza. I will start with some uh, background um, about about Gaza in general. Uh, Gaza Strip, it's, it's only 365 kilometers. It's inherited by 1.8 uh, million uh, Palestinians. Two-thirds of the population in Gaza are refugees, and unfortunately, 80% of them, they are food uh, aid dependent. Uh, the unemployment rate is 43%, and it's believed, this is actually the, uh, the official figures, and, and it's believed, no, it's even far beyond that. Um, there are five governorates in Gaza, um, from the north to the south, but it includes mainly uh, four cities, but the, all the cities are small in comparison uh, with other cities in the world, uh, perhaps the biggest is Gaza City. And there is eight camps and number of small towns and villages. Uh, Gaza originally has six crossings uh, that uh, connect Gaza with the uh, rest of the world, but unfortunately uh, at this stage only two of these crossings are operating. Uh, and the, the two crossings are with Israel. One for goods and called Shekerem Shalom, uh, and the other one is for passenger and called uh, Ares Crossing. And this crossing is only allowed uh, patients and people who work for international organizations and on some occasions some businessmen. So it's really a limited uh, kind of movement uh, through this crossing, and it doesn't operate on a daily basis. It works only until 3 p.m. every day, and it closes completely during the, uh, over the weekend. Um, the healthcare in Gaza, if you want to talk about the healthcare um, sector in Gaza, it's provided by mainly the Minister of Health. Uh, uh, the UNRWA and some uh, non-governmental health organizations. However, the Minister of Health is considered the main provider for the secondary care and they run 13, um, uh, 13 hospitals. Uh, there are two uh, key hospitals for uh, NGOs. These two, they work during, uh, yeah, mainly during emergency situation. Um, the UNRWA and the Ministry of Health, they provide uh, primary health care through their health care centers that are located in all the camps and the villages in Gaza Strip. Um, currently, the total number of the staff working, I'm, I'm focusing here on the, on the number of uh, staff working for the Ministry of Health, given that it's the key provider, actually, of uh, of, uh, of health services in Gaza. They have 11, 11 staff in Gaza, only 9,000 9, reports to their duties. Uh, of these 9,000, uh, 5,000, they don't receive their salaries because they are employed by the local government in Gaza. And for 4,000, they receive uh, salaries from the government in Ramallah. Uh, the the 5,000 who are not receiving salaries, they only uh, receive 40% of their salaries occasionally. It's not even on, on a monthly basis. Um, 
there is a shortage of the drugs and consumables at Gaza Hospital, and this is uh, actually it was start, started. This shortage started uh, many years ago, and uh, I have to say, and perhaps by the time when the blockade started on Gaza in 2007, and it, it's it's ongoing and it's. I cannot recall any time uh, during the last uh, few years when the Gaza hospitals did not suffer from shortages of drugs and consumables. The average of shortages is, is roughly between 35% uh, for the drugs and 50% for the consumables. And when we talk about consumables, we talk about uh, the cotton, the gauze, the gloves, uh, and, and it's really essential, like the drugs, in, in order to do any medical procedures. Um, also, the Minister of Health, they have um, equipment, I mean, um, like ventilators, uh, kidney dialysis machines, uh, uh, monitors, uh, all these kind of equipment, actually, they, they lack proper maintenance. and. Uh, Unfortunately, they don't have the qualified people to maintain the equipment locally, and they are unable to bring in uh, spare parts through the crossings because there is lots of restriction on bringing spare parts through the crossings. So there's plenty of equipment. However, not many of these are, um, yeah, usually they keep them aside because they are out of order. Uh, the training opportunities for the staff working at the Minister of Health and the, the hospitals is quite, quite limited, is especially with the closure of the crossings and, and Rahmi crossing in particular, uh, which the, was the gate, I mean, for the Gaza people to leave out uh, to, uh, uh, to seek training opportunities elsewhere in the world. Um, so this is quite limited, and unfortunately, also with the closure of Rafah crossing, uh, the uh, the medical uh, teams who used to come through Rafah crossing, um, they they stopped. And they they were, of course, they are also the the uh, the packages of uh, of uh, of the drugs and consumers. They they used to bring uh, in with them uh, also served, unfortunately. There are some medical teams uh, still coming through areas crossing, but this is, has to happen through uh, international organizations uh, and with, with, with in advance uh, coordination and uh, permit approval, uh, such as the, the, the British medical teams that MAP is bringing uh, on a monthly basis to Gaza. Uh, during the normal situation, the medical personnel, yeah, just this is I'm saying this to imagine how how the people uh, in the hospital how they work. So, so even when there is no emergency, the medical staff are working under very difficult circumstances. They have to manage patients with the lack of short and shortages of the drugs and consumables and with the skills they have because they don't have the training opportunities and also above that they are working and doing their best without getting salaries. The reality for the medical staff during conflict. Now I mean the story is completely different when during emergency situation and, and here I would like to talk particularly about our experience and, um, and the um, 
the figures that were collected uh, uh, in 2014 and uh, 2008 and 9 uh, uh, operation on Gaza. Um, first of all, the medical staff are not protected. Uh, this is this is very obvious and very clear. And the figures that I'm going to mention now, uh, it, it gives an evidence uh, for this. For example, in 2014, the last war in Gaza, there was 16 health workers who were killed while on duty, and 83 were injured. The majority of these, they were paramedics. And this is according to the WHO assessment immediately after the end of, uh, of the war. This, is, this was about the same, I mean, when, when we are talking about the uh, Castlead operation in 2008-2009, when also 16 health workers were killed and the 25 uh, were injured, also while on duty. Um, 45 ambulances have been damaged or completely destroyed during 2014 attacks, uh, 29 during 2008 and 2009. And the figures, as you see, I mean, it's even more in 2014 than 2008 and 2009, which indicate that situation perhaps getting worse rather than uh, improving. ICRC were coordinating, I mean, the International Committee for the Crisis, they always there and they always coordinating for the ambulance movement in order to reach uh, injuries without being attacked. But it seems, I mean, the above figures that I mentioned about the killing and the injuries of the health personnel uh, did tell us that the coordination mechanism, uh, it, it was not seriously taken by uh, by the Israelis, and I have to say that uh, th that we know that the ICRC they've been trying uh, their best, and they've been uh, trying to coordinate all the movement, even for the uh, the entry of the drugs items and consumables. We have our own experience when, during 2014 when we have tried to import some drugs and consumables through the uh, Kerem Shalom crossing. Uh, during the war, and then uh, the transport company were reluctant to bring the stuff in because they are worried how to drive and to reach the place and the hospital where we want them to deliver the items. And we have coordinated with the ICRC, and uh, basically the transport company said, we cannot trust that. I mean, the Israelis, they will tell them they will not bomb us, and perhaps they will do what you're going to do for us. So this is kind of situation that we, we, we witnessed and we encountered while, uh, while uh, yeah, during such circumstances. Um, I'm, I'm going to continue talking about the premises where the health personnel are working. Uh, 17 hospitals and 56 primary health care clinics were damaged or totally destroyed during the 2014 attacks. 15 hospitals and 43 primary health care clinics were damaged or destroyed in 2008-2009 attacks. Um, Al-Aqsa Hospital, which is a hospital located in the middle area of Gaza and served 250,000 people in, in that area. This, this, this hospital was shelled by artillery and two persons were killed inside the hospital. One of them is a child 
homes sought to shelter inside the hospital. They bombed the area around the hospital. So the people who are living in that area, they rushed to the hospital to seek shelter. And then when they when they shelled the hospital, the child killed, was killed there. And he's only 15 years old. And another guy was coming there only to visit one of his relatives. And he got killed in the emergency department because they, uh, sorry, they, in the surgical department, because they shelled the uh, the third floor and part of the second floor in the hospital, which include the maternity unit, the uh, uh, the uh, sorry, the surgical department, and also the administration department, along with the staircase uh, uh, in the hospital. So people were trying to evacuate patients uh, from these floors, and at the same time, uh, the Israelis continued to shell. Uh, in, in the hospital, so it was very chaotic time for, for people there. Incidents happened in, in the whole middle area, and it's the only hospital in the area where people have to come or to bring injuries in, and at the same time, the, the staff themselves felt unsafe, given that number of the people who were injured inside the hospital were some of the medical staff, including a nurse called Ethan Abu who is sustaining now long-term disability in her arm because of uh, of her injury inside the hospital. Um, another another hospital that was uh, exposed to to this actually it's the Wafa Rehabilitation Hospital, and the Wafa Rehabilitation Hospital is considered the only rehabilitation hospital in Gaza, and it serves the people with long-term disability. And it, by location, I mean this is only 1.5 kilometer uh, away from the border. So it, the Israelis started to bombard this uh, hospital from the 11th of July until they destroyed it completely on the 23rd of July. The staff and the patients, they remained in the hospital until 17th of July, so for the whole week, the patients with long-term disability, along with the, all the medical team, they were there and they have to bear with all this, tolerate of this compartment that happened on a daily basis, regardless of the uh, communication between the military, uh, I mean the Israelis and the ICRC trying to uh, to communicate that this is a medical hospital, there is patients there and uh, asking them to stop this. But without, 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 uh, without any luck, unfortunately, and uh, until it was evacuated, when when the the hospital lost the uh, completely the uh, electricity, and there was fire on some of the floors of the of the uh, hospital, so they had took the decision to evacuate uh, uh, with the coordination of uh, ICRC, and they now operating from a geriatric center located in Gaza City. Uh, and this is applicable again for another center called Mabarrat al-Rahna, which again is a center for people with disability, and it's located in the north of Gaza. Uh, this, this center was completely uh, destroyed, and unfortunately two disabled women were killed and four severely injured including one of the care uh, support workers. 
So, um, water protection, uh, protection, and this slide I'm trying just to raise some question. What what we had in the case? What protection measures were were there in the case? We know that ICRC are coordinating the movement for ambulances and perhaps for the movement of the drugs and consumables. But the what is what what happened actually? or the figures I just mentioned about the killing of, uh, of medical personnel while in the duty and the uh, destruction of ambulances and, and bombing one of the uh, a drug, uh, uh, a drug, actually, uh, there was a, a convoy for a drug that take, uh, transporting the drugs items from Gaza City to the Middle Area. Uh, this is, was in 2008 and 9, and it was pumped in the in the road, and it was coordinated by the ICRC. So, however, I mean the ICRC are coordinating, and they give the green light for the people to move. So, yeah, we have done the coordination, and they said yes, but this is what's happening. Uh, WHO also indicated that the GIS coordinates for all hospitals and center primary care centers are given to the Israelis, Israeli military and the purpose you know, to prevent targeting. But again, I mean, the figures I just mentioned about the uh, attacking 17 hospitals and number of uh, primary health care centers, it doesn't, it doesn't show that, that this kind of information was you know, taken in consideration or even taken seriously or respected. Uh, the humanitarian health workers are driving in labeled cars, I mean, the humanitarian health workers and the uh, health personnel driving in labeled cars uh, with, with flags, with ambulances, very high visibility, very difficult to miss. But again, I mean, there is big question mark. Apparently, there is, there is violation. Violation for a humanitarian, international humanitarian law, there is a violation for international human rights law. There is violation actually for the, the right of health for people. When you come to a hospital, and it's the only hospital that serves a population in the area, and there is many people are injured in that area, so that you are violating their right to health, to access that place and to be safe in that place. You are violating the, they, you are, they are violating the right of life for people. So there is all types of violation uh, during this period. I mean, and I, I mean, it's not only about this, I mean, the whole situation in general, the whole situation, I mean, given that this, this, this place has been underblocked for many years, uh, people are suffering, uh, the un unable to move, unable to, to travel, unable to uh, to find the proper jobs. Uh, the economic status is really poor. So the, and, and the health sector is really suffering with the, these severe shortages of drugs and consumables and lack of training opportunities. I mean, it, all this, so it's, all, it's all about violations. It's all about violation of all kinds of rights for Palestinians in Gaza. Um, and this is why I'm trying just to, to, to say how, how the medical staff, are, how they feel. Because honestly, and being a humanitarian worker, and I have to work during these difficult times in Gaza, 
it's, it's only about yeah, making a decision. Um, we know that there is no protection at all. So if I'm going, if I'm leaving home, I'm not protected. However, I mean, during perhaps the last war, uh, during all the, the, the last war in particular, we felt that there is no safe area in Gaza, even if we are at home, inside our, our houses with our families. But I mean, even to take a decision to go outside, it's like your own decision. You have to make it, to make a decision. I have to stay home or to leave. Because you know that it's no, it, it's no means for protection. I, when, I, when I used to leave during the war, I just make a decision that I want to go out because I have to do something. My organization needs to do something. We need to intervene. We need to reach people. So, and, and, and easily, I, I was really convinced, along with my colleagues in, in, in the Gaza office, we were uh, thinking that we might get killed and easily because because we, do, we didn't see any protection measures uh, working in, in that situation. So people who are working here, they do realize that they are not protected. So they make their own decision being there for patients and injuries or to stay with their families. The people, the health personnel inside hospital, they work under severe pressure. They, their life, first of all, under risk. They are concerned about their, their families. They are, you know, when, when the war is ongoing and you compartment all, all over the day, I mean, and you are in place and your family in another place, so you are thinking about them as well. You are tired and exhausted, and sometimes I've seen many of the health personnel, nurses, doctors, they are shouting and crying and just, you know, they don't know what to do. They are sitting in the corridors, they are hugging each other, overwhelmed with what is going on, you know. Unable to assure people, people are rushing here and there in the hospital asking about relatives and, and the health professionals, they feel helpless, unable even to assure people or to talk to them. So it's extremely very difficult situation. Uh, they work under pressure. They feel you know they are not protected. But at least, but they think you know this is this, this is their duty and they have to do it. They still have to do it. So if we want to think about what the psychological impact for these people, how they feel. I mean, at the end of the day, all the women, all the the, the health workers. I mean, the doctors, the nurses, the physiotherapists, the lab technicians, the, even the, the people who clean in the hospitals, the, 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 who do the laundry, everybody there, the humanitarian workers who rush to, to support or bring assistance here and there. I mean, they, at the end of the day, they're all human beings. How, how these people react? What do you think is the psychological impact on these people being to they having to work under circumstances, realizing that they are not protected, and it, nothing can be done perhaps to, to improve this or to, to make things different for, for them. Their, their, their right to health, their right to life is violated all the time. So, I mean, I'm just leaving this question to you, uh, honestly. And uh, in, in my final slide, I'm just referring to uh, uh, to, to the report that was um, um, uh, published by NAP uh, at the uh, Lisan Center for Human Rights and Lawyers for Palestinian uh, Human Rights. Um, you can see the link, and I believe you can find it on, on the website. There is plenty of uh, 
of case studies, there is some human stories, medical staff who are thinking uh, what happened to them uh, during 2014. Thank you. Is this working? Yeah. Thank you very much, Phil. Can you hear me? Yes, yes brilliant. So we'll take two questions. We need to be quite quick. So I'll ask two questions from the audience because then I know that your time is really precious and we have to let you go. So I'll take a question over here. Men in the blue shirt. Thank you. Marhaba, Fikr. It's Ian Chalmers here. Hello, Ian. <laughs> Mine isn't a question. I just want to thank you for the telling these people what your people are suffering and to congratulate you on your resilience. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Anybody else wants to ask a question? Yes, in the man in the black shirt. Hello, um, Lawani Jasper. My staff probably here. Not here. I'm trying to invest in. Oh, I will have to. I have two questions for you. Well, you have made a very beautiful presentation, but I want to know. Number one, why is it there's continuous destruction of uh, public of uh, health facilities in Gaza? That is one. Secondly, with the continuous destruction of uh, health facilities in Gaza and the protection measures put in place seems not to be enough, what do you think is the future of health in Gaza and uh, the health professionals? Thank you. Thank you for your question. However, I, I would I would really appreciate it if Fawzi can repeat the question because yes. the voice was kind of yes. So the question yeah. was the first question was why why do you think um, this is happening to public health facilities in Gaza? So what what are the under, underlying reasons? And then the second question is about the future of health. So how do you see the future of health in Gaza City? Mm -hmm. For the first question, why why this is happening for the health sector in Gaza? Perhaps this is very difficult question to to answer. I mean, if we if we are asking about these violations, I mean, or what is what what had happened during uh, the war, um, I, I'm not quite sure why because I don't, I, don't, I cannot see any justification uh, for attacking health facilities or attacking health personnel's while um, uh, on duties. I mean, I don't see any justification for something like that. Um, uh, and, and honestly, um, I don't see that the future will get better if, if no efforts were made actually to say to Israel, because it's the occupation uh, country, and they are imposing all uh, this blockade and siege on the people in Gaza, and they are the main, the main reason 
of the suffering uh, for the population uh, in Gaza and now in West Bank as well and elsewhere. Um, if, if no clear message uh, has reached them from the international community uh, that these people, they have the rights, uh, like every person in other places in the world, like the Israelis in, in, in Israel, uh, that they have right to, to help and they have to access all the means of life. Uh, without this, I don't see any improvement and any, any future, actually. Unfortunately, what we've been doing as MAP, and uh, there's some of other uh, international organizations in cooperation with the uh, health sector inside Gaza and uh, in, inside Palestine, um, uh, we are trying our best, however, I believe in what, it's quite limited in, in re, yeah, relation what, with, with, with what is needed. And if we are looking for permanent solution uh, for all these uh, misery that people are living in, uh, it will need actually uh, collaborative work from the international community uh, to stop this. Thank you so much, Shir. Thank you for your time and thank you for your work. So we'll move on to, can you hear me well? Yeah. So we'll move on to our next panelist today, um, Olivia Blanchard, who is an advocacy and communication professional with 10 years experience, more than 10 years experience, in the nonprofit and humanitarian sector in Europe and in Latin America. She holds a degree in political sciences from the University of Bristol, and she's currently working as a project officer on the MSF Medical Care Under Fire project. Okay. So good afternoon and thank you to MEDAC first of all for inviting um, me and Professor Frontier to this event and um, for the introduction. So as, as um, Fazia said, I'm the project officer for the Medical Care Under Fire project at Nassau Frontier. I'm sure that most of you know um, about the organisation, um, but in case there's somebody who's not aware, it's an independent uh, international medical humanitarian organisation that works um, providing medical aid in conflict settings um, to people affected by epidemics, uh, natural disasters and exclusion from healthcare. It was founded in 1971 in Paris um, and now it's an international movement. Um, I thought that the, one of the most interesting things to bring here today is um, our Medical Care Under Fire project which started in 2013 we're in the process of uh, finalising an internal report, so I'm just sharing with you some of the findings from this project. I will give you an insight into the project, how it came about, uh, what it has done so far, and some of the preliminary findings. which is when the project started. Um, Médecins Sans Frontières has, has been working in conflict settings for over 40 years now. And uh, 
we have never really looked at the issue of violence and insecurity in the field um, as a research. You know, as, as a obviously we we face violence on a daily basis. Violence is often the reason why we're in a given context, um, but we've never taken it as an issue and looked at it in depth. So in 2013, or just before that, facing repeated incidents, repeated uh, cases of violence, uh, the organisation decided to launch the Medical Care Under Fire project. And first of all, what it wanted to do was to um, understand the issues, understand to see if there are any trends, any patterns um, that we can pick out across different projects or different countries understand whether there's any way of saying that it's getting worse. Um, so that's, that was the reason for, for launching this project. It happened within the context where other organisations were also taking up this issue um, and launching their own campaigns. So for example, the International Community of the Red Cross uh, in 2011 launched their own Healthcare in Danger campaign. Um, the World Health Assembly in 2012 adopted a resolution launching an initiative to systematically collect data uh, on attacks against healthcare workers, facilities and transports. Um, other organisations like Safeguarding Health in Conflict Coalition uh, and Physicians for Human Rights are also looking into the issue. So it's something that's more and more becoming um, uh, a topic for studying. We wanted to understand what was happening and we didn't have much data so we decided to launch different research initiatives within the project to understand the issues a bit better. Um, by doing this, uh, we also, by generating information and some analysis, we're also able to use that as a tool in, in our negotiations and discussions in the field with local partners and governments and to bring more visibility to the issue of, of violence against healthcare. So, MSF, as I said, is no stranger to security incidents. The first recorded intentional act of violence was in Chad in 1980. Um, 88 people working for MSF or associated to MSF have lost their lives through intentional acts of violence. Associated means um, that they don't have a, so a direct con a contract with MSF, that they might be subcontracted. So out of those 88 people, 68 were direct MSF staff members and 81% of those were national staff colleagues, so they held a national contract as opposed to an expatriate international contract. <coughs> MSF staff have faced killings, kidnappings, abductions, robberies, looting, physical aggression, threats, intimidation and harassment throughout the organisation's history. This is um, so some of the data analysis that we've been able to do um, over the last few months. A year without a new severe security incident is exceptional. It's only happened once in the past 18 years and five times over the past 35 years. So this again is just to give you an insight into um, it's, it's definitely not a new thing that we face violence in the field, but obviously it's a very complex phenomenon. Um, the trend line moves upward, but obviously there is no correlation to the growth of staff deployed in the field. So there are many more 
staff now working for Médecins Sans Frontières in the field than there were in the 70s or the 80s. Therefore, we cannot say that it's got worse because the numbers have also gone up. Um, the operational volume is much bigger, much larger now than it was 20, 30 years ago. So we cannot say, or there is we have little evidence to say that there was a golden age when aid workers were safer than they are now. Um, and uh, all we can say is that we've, we've faced violence uh, since the beginning. So what I'd like to uh, explain to you today are some of the, is one particular research initiative that we've conducted. Um, we decided to develop 11 case studies in 11 countries. So Afghanistan, Central African Republic, Syria, Yemen, South Sudan, Somalia, Iraq, Honduras, Lebanon, Myanmar and Democratic Republic of Congo. So between 2014 and, or between 2013 and 2015, uh, researchers have gone out into the field and we've looked at the quantitative data, so looking at security incidents reported in the logs, um, security reports, internal documents, as well as qualitative uh, interviews with members of staff in the field and at HQ level. These case studies focused on contexts in which violent incidents have regularly occurred, and the aim was to identify the number and frequency of incidents in a given context, the types of incidents, their causes and their consequences, and MSF's response. Um, these case studies are at the core of the Medical Care Under Fire project. So we've been hearing about um, the bombing of hospitals in Gaza and uh, that is a very graphic, perhaps the most graphic example of medical care under fire. It's very literal and it's very graphic. But there are also other ways, less literal, uh, and in which medical care can be under fire. And this is something that has come up through our, through our case studies. Just to talk a little bit about the challenges uh, faced in doing this type of research in the field on this very complex issue is incomplete quantitative data. Um, there we know that there's been an under-reporting of uh, incidents and, and situations of violence in the field. Documenting this type of data when you are in the middle of an emergency um, is very difficult and obviously people do it because of operational needs but, uh, but very often if you're in the middle of an emergency you're not thinking about the research that might be conducted five, ten years later on that issue so some of the data is, is incomplete. It's very difficult to confirm intentionality as we, again, as we were hearing about uh, the, the example in Gaza, I mean, um, you know that something has happened, but unless the perpetrators publicly say why they did it, it's sometimes very difficult to assess that. So when we were looking at attacks in the field or violence in the field, is somebody attacking you because you are a Médecins Sans Frontières, or are they attacking you because they're attacking everybody, and they're also bombing schools, and they're also bombing churches and other civilian structures? So there are some of the questions that we had when doing this research. The identity of perpetrators is also um, often unknown. We did a particular study on four countries and we saw that between 25 and 65% of, uh, of the times of the incidents that were recorded, it was unknown. Um, the identity of the perpetrators were unknown. Also, 
um, individual staff members might have different perceptions of, of violence. So the way that the, the recording of security incidents might depend on the person. For some people, harassment towards staff might be part of the daily, daily uh, setting, uh, and to somebody else, it might be, you know, a, a, a grave situation that needs reporting. So differences in reporting and uh, perceptions uh, is also key when it comes to, to violence. Our perception of, of insecurity. Some outcomes of security incidents are hard to measure. The impact. I mean, obviously the. When, when violence uh, affects healthcare, uh, the delivery of healthcare, the, the, the first victims are, are the patients themselves and all those people who are left without that provision of healthcare. Um, but it would be difficult to quantify, in some cases, how many people do not get treatment once. For example, in the case of Médecins Frontier, if you withdraw and you have to close a project, it's then very difficult to, to put into numbers the, the impact of that uh, closure. So data can only give us so much information, that's why the qualitative side of this, these case studies were really important. Obviously also um, conducting research in conflict settings with problems of access, uh, and it was, was a real challenge. So security incidents and violence in general is a very complex phenomenon, as I said earlier. There is no simple explanation to violence against health workers. There's no one simple um, transversal theme. But there are several patterns that have been coming up throughout the case studies. So request for preferential treatment and the travels at triage. That, this came up very often. Um, Many reported incidents happened at this point of entry. So normally you decide who you're going to treat first based on medical needs. But very often political affiliations, social economic influences can muddle strictly medical considerations. So this can take two forms. An individual demands they're treated straight away um, or somebody demands that others do not receive treatment before them or at all. So staff working at intake uh, in a hospital and a healthcare centre are particularly vulnerable to threats and violence. We saw this in South Sudan, where armed soldiers broke into an MSF hospital, uh, violating our non-weapons policy and demand to get to be treated first. We've seen this in Central African Republic, the same thing happened with armed groups. In Lebanon, ethnic and sectarian groups have insisted on preferential treatment for themselves, making it impossible for staff to make assessments based purely on medical needs. So this is something that was coming up again and again, tension and violence rising in the triage and how, and we, we see how staff working in, in, on that front line uh, are particularly vulnerable to threats, harassment and even physical violence. Um, another pattern that we have seen in, in some of the contexts, the poor relationships medical staff and patient, and violence linked to, percept to perception of unsatisfactory treatment. So in some contexts, and this is very visible in what it was in Yemen when we did a, the first of the 11 case studies in 2013, we saw how staff-patient relationships in general in the country are very strained by mutual antipathy, and expectations 
of patients and caretakers are not always fulfilled. Now, in the context where you don't have a complaints form or a procedure to express your dissatisfaction, very often violence is the, the way forward. So, um, that's, that's uh, another, another pattern that we were seeing throughout. You might be providing good quality medical care, but it might not be meeting expectations. And again, uh, that can be a source of tension and conflict. Looting and destruction of health centres for economic gain or other reasons. So, obviously, like when, when an organisation like Mesa San Frontier goes into any context, it's going to have an impact on the economic dynamics because it's a source of employment, it's, um, it's providing healthcare in some places where it might, might be competition to other healthcare providing services. So, violence perpetrated or motivated by financial reasons is, is another of the patterns. This happened in Afghanistan, a maternity, um, we were offering maternity services in a, in a maternity service in, in COS, and there was a private maternity healthcare service uh, that didn't like it because we were taking away their patients. So they, uh, they attempted to bomb our, our, our service. So that's, you know, it's, it was purely financial reasons behind that. In Central African Republic, looting took place, uh, has taken place often in just a total atmosphere of total impunity. Um, in many cases, they then ask for compensation to return the goods. Eastern DRC, we've seen very similar things happening. Projects have been robbed numerous times for material and financial gain. In some cases, the motives are more elemental. In South Sudan, our men have entered um, our hospitals at night demanding food. Medical staff in Iraq have been targeted for financial reasons, singled out by thieves and kidnappers who think that they are likely to come from a middle-class background and have a good salary because they work for a humanitarian organisation. So again, uh, staff at risk for financial reasons. Extension of war and violence. So... It's part of the tactics of war to deprive or offer services um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a way of getting support or withdrawing support from, a, from a, your uh, conflicting partner. Being in the midst of violence and structures being hit like any other civilian service, we see this continuously in some contexts. In South Sudan, Lea Hospital was totally destroyed, as was the rest of the town. So the way armed forces behave towards civilian infrastructure in general is another one of the patterns. The persecution of patients or civilians seeking sanctuary in health centres. I mean, as we heard in the case in Gaza, often people will run to the hospital as a form of protection. This um, is, is a very delicate moment, of course, because they then become the prime target, as does the hospital. So. Very often, health structures will be used as safe havens, and this has happened in South Sudan, and that can be the source of new attacks. And finally, the criminalisation of healthcare. So, 
Often states would use hospitals and medical workers to identify their opponents and uh, use the obligation to report certain uh, injuries, like uh, when you're wounded by a bullet, uh, you have to report that in certain contexts. And obviously if there's a good justice system and, and uh, that shouldn't be a problem, but in some contexts that's used to then accuse the medical staff of supporting opponents who are described by the state in that case as criminals. We're seeing this widespread pattern in Syria. So opponents are identified uh, through the hospital, through hospitals. Um, so as we've seen, there can be a wide range of perpetrators, ranging from international forces, state security forces, armed non-state actors, authorities, community leaders, organised criminals, health staff, patients and families themselves, visitors and other civilians. So one of the things that has come out of our research is that we really need to focus or, or widen our, our, our analysis, our risk and context analysis in the field. So we're taking into account all the different ways in which medical care can be put under fire or can be uh, at risk of violence and tension. In Myanmar, I didn't mention, but in Myanmar, for example, there is widespread discrimination against the Rohingya um, ethnic group, and we have seen how it's uh, how Ministry of Health staff, who we work alongside in some of the health facilities, refuse to treat people from that ethnic group. Other civilians prevent the Rohingya minority from accessing healthcare centres. Um, so sometimes it can be staff and patients themselves who are at the at behind or the perpetrators of, of violence. Um, there has perhaps been a tendency within our organisation to focus, and this is what we're looking into now. How can we use all this information to improve and and improve our prevention measures in the field and and really understand even deeper the different layers. Uh, in the issue of violence against healthcare. Security incidents occur due to a multitude of overlapping factors, often at junction where external risks interact with internal vulnerabilities. So in which ways could we improve our triage area to make it more comfortable for relatives, improve perhaps the way we communicate around medical protocols so it's very clear why we're conducting a number of tests so that doesn't become misinterpreted or misunderstood by certain patients and therefore doesn't escalate into a moment of tension and possibly a violence. What can we do as an organisation to improve uh, the way we work uh, to further prevent these things from happening? And finally, most of the time when we report some victims among humanitarian workers, it means thousands of dead among the populations from a, an internal document going back to 1997. So, you know, we focus on oh, this presentation has talked about healthcare under fire and medical staff uh, under fire, but um, very often when there is an incident, it's it means that what's happening outside and what's happening to the civilian population is incredibly serious. Um, so we must forget it, but we must forget that the first victims are patients and civilians themselves. Okay.
Thank you very much, Olivia. We'll take questions at the end. So I'll introduce, in search for more answers, I'll introduce our next guest, Dr. Stuart Gordon, who is from the LSE. Welcome. He previously was at the Royal Military Academy. Stuart co-authored the UK government's Hel Helmand Roadmap, the, that was the UK's diplomatic and military strategy for Afghanistan. And he was the lead researcher of the Hemland Quick Impact Project Program Evaluation and the Cross-Government Working Group on Health and Conflict Report. During 2003, he was the Operations Director for the US-UK-Iraq Humanitarian Operations Center in Baghdad with responsibility of restoring Iraq's public food distribution system. He has conducted field research and program consultancy work in Afghanistan, Iraq, Nepal, Sudan, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Somalia, Cyprus, Croatia, and Bosnia-Herzegovina. Do you want to go, Misha? I've got a couple here. Yeah, I'll, I'll just lift that one. Sorry. Perfect. Thank you. Okay, well, um, thank you, Fazia, for the introduction. <laughs> thank you for joining me. Um, and uh, thank you to MedAct for the uh, invitation to come talk to you today. Um, they, they telephoned me and asked me to talk off an article um, I had published last year in Social Science and Medicine, which is um, uh, up there. Um, the article really began because I was quite interested in listening to large numbers of military physicians in the British Army talking about how they were genuinely humanitarian. Um, and large numbers of uh, NGO uh, medical practitioners talking about how the military couldn't be humanitarian. Um, so I was quite interested in working out why that identity existed, particularly in military positions. Um, why was it that they felt themselves to be humanitarian, and how was that identity, uh, that identity formed? And it was also quite interesting from my perspective, because um, a lot of the humanitarian community would, were very worried, particularly in the case of Afghanistan and Iraq, about what they described as the blurring of the boundaries between strategically driven assistance from governments and militaries and humanitarian assistance provided by the non-governmental and um, UN community. And there was a real perception that um, because it was difficult to tell apart that assistance which was driven by strategic and policy objectives from that assistance that was driven by uh, the need to save life, that this was compromising humanitarian space and leading to deaths amongst the humanitarian community that were otherwise uh, avoidable. So the blurring of the boundaries debate was really, really interesting. And you could see this being played out in the identities of, uh, uh, of military physicians. So for me, it represented a sort of microcosm of many of those, uh, many of those debates. And that's why I wrote what is possibly the world's most tedious article on the subject. Um, the that worked beautifully. There we go. Wonderful. Um, the the other sort of interesting 
uh, aspect of this is that uh, it was quite clear to me that uh, military physicians um, had a, a, a dual and complex identity. It was dual in the sense that they were both uh, attached to a military organisation, um, but they were also medical professionals and non-combatants within that military organisation. They combined uh, complex identities of being non-combatants in, in, mil in military uniforms, whilst also being medical professionals who in exceptional circumstances had to share the risks of the battlefield and potentially even had to fulfil um, their duty of care to uh, the injured by securing the immediate area uh, from further attack and then attending directly to the medical needs of the injured. And I saw this firsthand in uh, Baghdad where uh, I saw a military physician, an American ph uh, physician, uh, leap out of a vehicle, return fire uh, to Iraqi insurgents and then provide life-saving care, first of all, to the American soldiers uh, who had been wounded in the first burst of bullets, and then actually to the, um, the insurgent who had just shot. So it's a really strange uh, context that you've got these mixed identities, um, and no wonder they all have identity problems. But you also have a sense uh, that uh, military medicine has always been caught between strategic and collective duties. As a collective duty, the task of the military medical services really is about returning the rapid return of soldiers uh, to the fighting in order to increase organisational fight, fighting power. But at an individual level, you could argue they had a hum humanitarian and essentially individual responsibilities to both the wounded and the sick victims of armed conflict. So it was these contrasting radically different ideas uh, that presented many of them with real problems. How do you reconcile the idea of the Hippocratic Oath and your individual life-saving obligations with belonging to an organisation that is essentially trying to mobilise fighting power in order to be destructive on the battlefield? So I don't know how they handle it, but I would struggle with those competing uh, identities. So I started to interview military physicians, particularly British ones, but also uh, other NATO uh, uh, states, physicians, Canadians, um, Danes, and so forth, but also Americans as well. And it was also very clear um, that, uh, that there were some striking similarities with humanitarian uh, uh, medical, uh, medical staff. And I, I tried to chart them rather unsuccessfully um, on this slide. Um, but uh, certainly from the humanitarian perspective, there, there really is a tremendous um, difficulty often with the idea that people in uniform could somehow be humanitarian, which is understandable given the blurring of the boundaries debate, but also quite difficult in some ways because some people would argue that humanitarian space is essentially IHL, international humanitarian law, writ large. And therefore, soldiers have responsibilities as occupying powers. They have responsibilities to the sick and the wounded. And therefore, discharging those is in itself uh, a component of IHL. So even IHL and the humanitarian space debates uh, generate um, some challenges in placing the military physician. 
The starting point, though, was for many military physicians, they were trained in um, civilian health establishments. They have a common normative foundation with the Hippocratic Oath. Uh, and increasingly, they're regulated and insert, uh, by civilian health services, and they're inserted in national health service institutions. So their identity has increasingly become very, very similar to their colleagues in civilian professional uh, 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 medical um, establishments. There are also um, significant uh, similarities in terms of the way in which emergency uh, uh, assistance is provided on the battlefield. Military medical services have found ways of projecting forward medical skills to the point of wounding on the battlefield with the aim of conducting critical damage controlling surgery as soon as possible after injury. And you see a sort of functional similarity with field surgical teams, for example, belonging to the ICRC, where field surgical teams are often placed as close to the point of wounding in situations of conflict, in situations as historically as diverse as Somalia, southern Sudan, Darfur, and more recently Afghanistan and Libya. So there is a functional isomorphism, a sort of convergence of practice that uh, gives a sense of common identity. But I think that can be slightly misleading because some of the, the, um, the purposes of humanitarian field surgical teams are not simply about the provision of surgery. For example, um, ICRC field surgeons talked in terms about their provision of medical care um, the, uh, was also a component of the protection of non-combatants. In other words, field surgical teams were placed close to the point of wounding and they were there as an expression of solidarity. They were there in the hope that this would deter um, uh, abuses. Uh, and this was a, a, a case of impartial uh, access to surgical care. So the point is that the function of the field surgical teams um, was fundamentally different. For humanitarians, it was also a component of solidarity and protection strategies. Whereas for the military, it was essentially a functional similarity. There's also the sense um, that uh, militaries have increasingly uh, found themselves integrated within civilian national health services. Certainly for the British military, for example, uh, increasingly uh, uh, military hospitals have been closed down. Uh, we've seen the kind of garrison doctor who uh, provided very limited forms of care to uh, essentially well-dependent uh, populations and young men who probably uh, the most complex sorts of illnesses were a sprained ankle. Um, but this idea of sort of isolation from um, the real world of medical practitioners um, really was brought to a rude end uh, with the increasing deployment of Blair's Wars, first in the Balkans, but particularly in Afghanistan uh, and Iraq. And also with increasing civilian regulation of uh, military physicians, particularly post-shipment and the Bristol, Bristol Baby Unit scandals, um, we find that doctors, uh, ha uh, military physicians, have reinforced this sense of, uh, uh, of linkage with the civilian medical community. It's also the case, as well, um, that doctors have, been, uh, military physicians, have been able to maintain a space apart from the rest uh, of, their, uh, of the, uh, the armed forces. 
And from the outside, it might look as though the army is this homogeneous organisation uh, and doctors are simply a component of the, uh, the fighting power. But what's interesting about the British case compared with, say, the American case is that this hegemonic military identity or identity as a combatant um, is something that's easy to regulate within the regimental system. In the British system, for example, um, uh, military commanders are very used to the idea of signal specialists, of artillery specialists, of infantry specialists, of cavalry specialists. And the regimental system has been uh, a wonderful way for these organisations to maintain expertise uh, and to mitigate against a, a common identity. And what was clear from talking to senior military uh, medical physicians is that the regimental system and this federalisation of uh, identities in the British Army had meant that it was possible to maintain a very different identity as a military physician from that of other soldiers in the army. So what this allowed you to do, really, was to develop um, a non-combatant identity that was very different from uh, the, the sort of dominant warrior ethos uh, of other parts of the army. So no wonder they're confused. On the differences side, I think what was also interesting is um, the idea that whilst um, humanitarian uh, physicians are often talking about universal impartiality, what's very clear from military uh, physicians uh, is that they engage in very different, differential forms of treatment, that there isn't such a thing as universal uh, impartiality in the forms of treatment that are offered as an organisation. And this uh, was one of the great differences um, for me from the research. Even though there seems to be a convergence between military and humanitarian physicians' roles, the um, issue of uh, universal impartial care um, is a massive divider. For military physicians interviewed, um, they were very clear to recognise the inevitability of different levels of treatment, particularly in Afghanistan and Iraq, but particularly so in Afghanistan. At the time of the last interview in 2014, um, UK policy was to evacuate um, wounded soldiers uh, to what were described as Role 4 facilities, a uh, fully functioning British hospital in the UK, usually provided by the NHS, as soon as was practically policy, as practically and clinically possible. In other words, normally within 48 to 72 hours, critically wounded soldiers would be evacuated to the UK. Uh, other NATO troops would be evacuated in much the same way. Uh, Danish troops back to Denmark, American troops to Germany or, or back to the United States uh, or uh, to Britain. Wounded Afghan soldiers and civilians were triaged and often treated in NATO facilities across Afghanistan. And it was very rare to find, rare if I never found one, but uh, I was told it was a very rare quote, uh, to find um, civilian uh, Afghans wounded in the, uh, in the fighting who would be turned away from any NATO uh, medical facility. However, unlike um, UK troops, once stabilised, um, Afghans would simply be inserted back into the extremely rudimentary Afghan healthcare system. But the inability of Afghan hospitals to, to, uh, to continue the treatment protocols uh, for the military field hospitals would often delay patient transfers, 
raising the risk that the treatment of civilian casualties would consume scarce resources, block access to high bed, uh, dependency beds, and pose wider ethical dynamics when further specialist treatment was required. Um, sorry, I'm having to go off my, uh, my laptop because the uh, torrential rain caught my notes in the open and converted them to alphabet soup. Um, but uh, there we go. Um, so it, it generated really hard choices uh, for NATO forces. And there was one interview in particular, um, uh, a Lieutenant Commander, Dr. John MacDonald, a Canadian forces um, uh, physician who was far more open perhaps than, uh, uh, than British um, military. Um, but he gave some really powerful testimony to um, the very difficult types of decisions that he was called upon to make while serving in um, Afghanistan in 2006. And the medical facility in which he was, uh, uh, he was working was designed to provide enough emergency surgical treatment for the rapid stabilization and transfer of NATO's uh, European and North American soldiers to a modern US facility in Germany. And it also provided uh, care for Afghan soldiers and policemen when there was a threat to life, limb, uh, or eyesight. Afghan soldiers, as I said, weren't entitled to repatriation to uh, Europe or the UK. Instead, they were transferred to a very rudimentary hospital, Mirwes Hospital, uh, some 10 kilometers away uh, in Kandahar. Um, and this created some really stark choices. Um, and this is uh, a quote from um, uh, Commander John MacDonald. Um, I'll try and read it out, but I'm going to have to squint a bit. Uh, the humanitarian aid, i.e. sick Afghan civilians, uh, cases turned away at the door because of the limited capacity of the makeshift 11-bed plywood frame military hospital with an intensive care unit comprising just three beds. There was also the inexorable pressure to just stabilize and move patients along because beds had to be kept open in the event of coalition soldiers from Western nations needing treatment, knowing that Afghani patients were being transferred to a hospital in Kandahar that doesn't have the ability to mechanically ventilate to keep the patients alive, and that their chances of survival were decidedly slim. Um, later on in the interview, he uh, reports on, a, on a, a particularly harrowing case involving a young Afghan soldier who arrived at the field hospital with extensive vascular bleeding. Um, and he said, I said to the surgeon, where are we going with this guy? His vessels were just all torn in the abdominal region, major vessels. This guy is not going to do well. We can either continue on for hours and hours and see what we can get to, or if you guys don't think this is going to be successful, let's not use all our resources because there are a lot of conflicts going on in the area. And so a decision was made to stop at that point. At the time, it was just a fairly analytical decision, and it wasn't until afterwards that the, uh, you start going, wow, the enormity of this. Um, a third one with Daniel Sokol. Uh, was a mass casualty incident involving a mixture of coalition personnel and Afghans. The doctors were told not to intubate any of the Afghans with burns exceeding 50%. Without a burns unit, those patients would be doomed. The coalition patients, on the other hand, could be repatriated to the home countries to obtain high-quality burns care. Such divergent treatment is hard to bear and highlights the need to develop local healthcare infrastructures. But what are the immediate alternatives? And this was interesting because not only did it generate differential forms of healthcare, 
which was a profound difference between the organizational priorities of military physicians and those of um, uh, uh, humanitarian organizations and civilian healthcare professionals full stop. But it also contributed in interesting and new ways to the blurring of the boundaries debate. What do I mean? Well, um, the need to do something about the incredibly poor quality uh, medical care provided in the Afghan system often coincided with the hearts and minds debate, uh, the pressure for um, military physicians to contribute to consent-winning activity. So driven by a sense of the Hippocratic Oath and conformity with their military identity, um, some soldiers in the early days engaged in medical civil, civic action uh, patrols. Now, these were often very, very bad medicine, largely because you couldn't say in advance uh, where you were going to go. So soldier, uh, medical uh, uh, soldiers would turn up, uh, people would come in, you couldn't say that you were coming back to that area again, so diagnosis were problem, problematic, complex treatments were very problematic, uh, and it was very much a, a superficial form of healthcare, which attracted uh, vulnerable people to places which were being watched by the Taliban. So it was a very dangerous form of medicine as well as being poor quality uh, medicine. The problem with patient transfers also forced um, uh, medical physicians, uh, military physicians, to engage in host nation um, med, uh, system strengthening, um, in all, uh, medical system strengthening, in order to ease bed blocking with the military medical uh, services. The idea being that you couldn't keep these people in the um, system geared towards Western troops, so you had to facilitate transfer, which meant looking at the facilities in Afghan hospitals, buying equipment and helping with the infrastructure. So almost automatically and inexorably, to resolve a problem with the military medical services, the militaries became involved in civilian hospitals in Afghanistan. And this was legitimized uh, as well by the um, consent-winning activity agenda. So blurring the boundaries wasn't simply driven by consent-winning. It was driven by practical problems uh, with healthcare. And then finally, there was another problem as well. Large numbers of doctors who uh, very often have very little to do. They were configured around peak demands after a battle where there would be rapid uh, turnaround of uh, of injured uh, and wounded, but for long periods of time, there would be much less to do. And in those cases, driven by the Hippocratic Oath, by a norm to try and do something, soldiers, uh, military physicians, would become involved in medical uh, combat action patrols, uh, civic action partnerships patrols, uh, or they would begin looking at host nation health system strengthening. So the point was the blurring of the boundaries debate wasn't simply driven by consent winning, it was driven by some of the normative uh, agendas of um, doctors who saw themselves as civilian in that particular case. So the, the point perhaps um, is that blurring of the boundaries isn't simply a case of hijacking uh, humanitarian assistance for the global war on terror. It's not simply driven by consent winning activities. It's often very closely tied to the kind of identity that these poor beasts caught between the military and the Hippocratic Oath engage in. Thank you very much indeed.
Thank you, Stuart. So we've heard some very interesting, very interesting talks, very distinct realities from a local organization in Gaza, international NGO, and perhaps that interface, a very blurry interface um, of military involvement in humanitarian responses. So we'll open for questions. We're running out of time. I already see hands. I'm going to try to be very methodological. I think I need to go in sections this time. So I'll start with the back. I'm asking you, please, please, no comments, questions. Um, questions more than comments, and please keep it as short as possible. Thank you. Yeah, in the back. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, my name is Daniel. I'm a public health registrar and a former medical team leader for MSF. Olivia, thank you for that presentation. It was very interesting. I wondered what you thought or if you'd heard about the um, uh, the origin or <laughs> starting to appear a macro vote. <laughs> a larger version of the problems of triage preferent treatment. This is a bit intermittent. Um, in Afghanistan by the US slash Afghan forces. Uh, there's been some speculation now or comment by allegedly respectable commentators saying that uh, it was MSF's fault, essentially, because they were treating wounded Taliban, as well as civilians and Afghan forces. And this has been put forward by someone respectable, uh, like Alan Dershowitz in the US, professor of law, question mark. So, uh, yes, I wonder what your thoughts were about that. Not to ask anything too controversial. I'm sorry, the actual question was... <laughs> what, uh, what, what do you think about the preferential treatment, uh, you shouldn't be treating those people, therefore you are uh, fair game for attack, essentially. Okay, well, as um, according to international humanitarian law, um, it is not illegal to treat uh, wounded people, whether they have been combatants. Um, and as far as I understand, uh, from what my colleagues say in the organisation, there had been an agreement made with all sides that they would treat, MSF would treat um, anybody wounded. And that agreement was made and uh, it, was, it, it was obviously, it was set in place. So it's, it's, it doesn't go against the law to treat wounded combatants. Take another question, yes, in the front. Thank you both of you for the talks. Uh, just my question about the blurring of the uh, between being civilian and as well a military doctor. Do you think it's highlighted by the fact that actually the military doctors also continue to have their NHS contracts so that as soon as they do come back home, they are still involved as uh, doctors within civilian hospitals. So it's easy for them to not be able to distinguish between being military and civilian. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I think so. I, I, of course, there are full-time uh, military positions as well, um, and uh, as well as reserve military positions. So I, I think these things do um, create incredibly difficult um, pressure for them. There, 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 there are also perpetual pressures from um, NATO itself, particularly from U.S. commanders, for um, the medical instrument to be used as a, a form of soft power. 
and there was a, a, an almost constant struggle between um, those military physicians that saw medcaps and hearts and minds activity as poor medicine and poor soft power, poor politics, and those that saw it as uh, an absolutely vital instrument of counterinsurgency um, strategies. And, and it was literally constant. Every time I, I, I was in Afghanistan very regularly, and every time I would, I would try and interview the same people, and it was like watching a game of tennis as to who was winning. Um, uh, with sort of more rallies than a Tim Henman final um, uh, could ever ever have a Tim Henman playing where he is. So the um, the point would be that um, that there is this perpetual struggle over what counts as as good uh, counterinsurgency, and um, there are also national differences as well with European doctors on the whole um, arguing that medcaps. Um, and hearts and minds activity doesn't really work. Uh, uh, and um, North American doctors, US rather than Canadian, arguing the exact opposite. And within the American uh, military health system, for example, you have um, uh, a number of uh, hospital ships. Uh, health is routinely used as a form of soft power. It's very much embedded in the kind of mythology of, um, uh, of Vietnam. Uh, and, and the way in which you would win the hearts and minds of the local population. So it's a number of different identities and almost sort of imaginaries uh, as to the role that health plays uh, within a, a, a military context. But yes, you're absolutely right, there are, there are those problems as well at the very much more sort of mundane level. Yes, question from the lady in the back Thank you. Yeah, I'm afraid it's another question for Stuart. Um, thank you. That was a, a wonderful talk. Um, um, I feel I should apologise for wanting to mention Tundus again. It's a particularly recent and painful incident in a, a long history of such attacks, and it, it's perhaps tactless to mention it. But if I can perhaps come at it obliquely, perhaps I'll improve my understanding. You know, I've got a lively interest in barriers to collective learning. I'm wondering if you had been able to ask your interviewees how they und could understand the Kunduz bombing, I'm wondering what replies you might have got. Um, okay, uh, I have spoken to um, friends and colleagues of mine in the, in the military medical services uh, about this. Most, most of them were surprised. Um, you know, as a point of law, it's a, an absolute no-brainer. Hospital facilities are uh, protected under IHL. Uh, they enjoy significant levels of protection um, under IHL. Um, I suppose some of them would ask um, uh, questions related to um, did the uh, people that authorised uh, the dropping of bombs, understand what they were targeting, had they got the right data, had they made sufficient precautions in the attack. Um, that some of them also asked what was the facility actually being used for? Um, was it still being, or was there a sense that the facility was being used for purposes other than uh, being run as a, as a hospital? But I don't think any of them had any question over the legality of it. It was, it was quite clearly uh, an unlawful act if it was intentional. The issue would have been whether or not uh, it was intentional, whether or not there were mitigations in terms of it being used as a military site, 
uh, whether uh, uh, sufficient precautions with intelligence had, um, had taken place. Um, but I don't think any of uh, my colleagues have any, any doubt at all uh, uh, that it is perfectly lawful and legitimate to engage uh, in, protect, in providing medical attention to uh, wounded combatants of both sides. And I suppose the other interesting thing is in Iraq in particular, I saw uh, American military physicians providing aid um, and surgical care to um, wounded people who only minutes before had been firing at, uh, at American troops. So at, at a sort of functional level, uh, I don't think it's questioned at, at all. I would just add, um, I encourage you all to go onto the MSF website because a few days ago um, we put out um, uh, our, the findings of our internal review on the Kunduz bombing. So it goes into a lot of detail, even the text messages, the SMS and the phone calls that were made in that hour of, of bombing to the US Army. So um, if you want more information about, uh, about that, go, go to our website. Yep, gentlemen in the very, very back, I think we'll have to There's a connection between the Palestinian uh, situation in Gaza where Israeli forces had 40 or 50 hospitals in 2014. As far as I know, nothing exactly happened to them. There's been no international time commitment. So maybe if that, nothing's happened with that, that's possibly why they're not visiting hospitals in Afghanistan, because they know that nothing will be done about it. Comment on Or has that, or has anything happened to Israel? Have they had any sanctions? Have they had military support withdrawn after visiting all these hospitals in school? Not that I'm aware of, but you're probably close to um, No, I'm, I mean, I'm not aware of that. Um, I think one of the... I mean, one reason why people think that maybe IHL is not that useful is because how do you enforce it? So it's um, you have international law. Who is responsible for holding... Uh, to account those who um, don't respect it. Um, and that's why the International Humanitarian Fact-Finding Commission that has been activated as a result of the Kunduz bombing for the first time since it was uh, put in place in the 90s might be a step forward in, in, in addressing these issues. Um. There's a question on the very right. Yep, sorry. <laughs> Thank you. I think we, this may go on to the session that we get after the break, but I wondered from the colleague from MSF what you routinely have in place for in-service debriefings and for post-service debriefings. Um, I realise that access for staff, but we've just had, it may be difficult, but then we've just had the lady on the Skype from Gaza, and in the NHS we would normally do quite a lot of detailed debriefing if we had something traumatic and the stuff we're doing over here is as nothing compared to the colleagues that you're dealing with so I just wondered what the systems were for psychological support for, for the people you were talking about when they had those sort of direct attacks. Well there's um, uh, for sure there's a there's a process while, while in mission and after being in mission um, we do all, our, all we can to train people before um, they go out to the field, obviously, although it's, it's uh, training somebody on how to face moments of violence is, is hard. Um, but for sure, throughout the, somebody's mission, there's access to mental health 
um, assistance. And of course, in, when a crisis like Kunduz happens, immediately the first people going out, I mean, the, the, a crisis team is set up and a mental health advisor and psychologist are there for sure on the ground supporting people in those first days and, and, and longer term. All right, we might have time for one more question. Everybody wants to go to the break, but I've got one last question from the lady in blue. Right here, yeah. an interesting question because we're so we're just finalizing the, the our, our own internal report on all the research that we've been doing and we're now asking ourselves how do we go forward with this project and I mean we're going to we, we want to share our conclusions on an external level but one of the things that that, that is discussed uh, quite a lot within the organization is what sort of campaign or advocacy efforts could we do to, to generate more awareness? Because um, as you point out, it's very often people working in the national services who are, who are not you know, going to be evacuated or go home at the end of their mission, who are living with, within those communities who are really bearing the brunt of, of violence against healthcare. And one of the things that we're discussing internally is the possibility of doing some sort of solidarity event between national health staff in the UK and Western Europe and the US and all over the world. You know, so standing in solidarity from here with somebody in Syria um, as medical staff um, and, and, and bringing some awareness into the public sphere and through the media. So it's interesting that that, that, that could be an interest. Uh, so maybe it would be good to discuss a few ideas afterwards. Tea, if we, if we manage to go with tea. So thank you very much to our panel. Thank you to the audience. Thank you. If you're interested in these issues from a research